Hello, my name is Toby Amies and I am a multiple award losing filmmaker from the UK. It is the dream band viewed from outside. It's the band you could do anything you wanted to in it. Tell him he's talking a load of shite. This is the first King Crimson where there's not at least one member in the band that actively resents my presence, which is astonishing. You could trust a horse, you could trust a dog, but you could never trust a fucking guitar player. I love you, Robert. I'm sorry I broke your heart. I'm sorry. That makes me livid. Some of us went through hell. It was you told. Oh, I can't take this. At one point, I just walked out. When I came back from making some of that music, my hair had fallen out. How can I put it? I don't have the problem. The problems lie elsewhere. The original lineup of King Crimson contained a bunch of and chief amongst those was. I can't be the only sane man in this asylum. This is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week, I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. This week, it is my extreme pleasure to welcome acclaimed filmmaker and broadcaster, Toby Amies, director and co-producer of In the Court of the Crimson King. The film captures life on the road with King Crimson, the influential rock band that has been inspiring generations of musicians for over 50 years. While the documentary will be a real treat for the band's legendary cult following, you don't have to be a fan to appreciate what Toby has captured with his film. Stay tuned as we discuss King Crimson, the essence of being in a rock band, the philosophy of music, and the meaning of life. Toby, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Uh, Generally speaking, good. Thank Good. You. It's spring in the UK, yeah. so um, everything's cheered up a little. Yeah, I think so. Being based in the UK as well, I can I can uh, attest to that. Uh, the film we're going to be discussing is uh, in the court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at fifty, premiered at South by. I think it's been at a few other festivals. Is it? When is it going to get a wider release? Don't know. It's uh, that's um, <clears throat> well, we're sort of working that out at the moment, to yeah. be honest. You know, it's sort of um, I'd like it to I'd like it to go out to the widest audience possible as effectively as possible. And we're, we're seeing what the best way of doing that at the moment is. Um, there is a very large demand from, for that film because, you know, one of the films, one of the things the film documents is the very particular almost unique relationship that band have with their fans. Mm. Well, so uh, so we 
Definitely. I mean, I've I've had the fortune, great, great fortune of being able to see it. Uh, obviously, most of our listeners and viewers will not have seen it yet, but uh, we'll definitely be on the lookout for it because I highly recommend it. It's. Um, but for the maybe you can uh, take that a little further. What is the what is in the court of the Crimson King all about? If you can give us a, a synopsis, um, if that's possible. <laughs> Well, it's, I suppose, I mean, I don't like to sort of make up the audience's mind for them. You know, that's one of the things I think that, mm. I think that film is a collaborative medium and and, that, and and it starts at an almost atomic level with film, you know, that that, that you require the audience to, to fill in the gap between frame one and frame two in order mm. to create movement. And I think that's a really good principle from which to operate as a filmmaker, which is, you know, which is what Lubitsch said, isn't it? It's like two plus yeah. two. You tell yeah. them two plus two equals four, you lose them. But if you let them work out that it's four, then then you've got them, you know. Um, so, so a good fit for this band, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In, um, but it's, a, I mean, I suppose that, like, initially, Robert wanted to Robert Fripp wanted to make the film, he said, to better understand the nature of King Crimson. Mm. Um, and for me, as a filmmaker, I'm just in, I'm interested in the human condition. So, yeah. you know, I'd said to people that as far as I was concerned, it's an examination of the human condition using King Crimson as the medium. But I think mm. King Crimson matter as a band because they speak directly to the human condition. So it all came in together quite nicely, I think. Um, it's, I'll tell you what it isn't, which is probably easier, is that it's not a Wikipedia article with a bunch of old farts talking about the olden days. Um, exactly. Yeah. Because that film's easy to make and it's boring and it's not going to tell you anything. You yeah. can't already find out on the internet or reading Sid Smith's um, biography of the band. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's all very interesting. I mean, maybe... So um, I know the demographics of our uh, listeners. Uh, maybe uh, give us a little introduction. Uh, I, I agree with you. Don't tell us what the film's about or what it isn't about necessarily, but um, maybe a little perspective on King Crimson, because there might be a decent number of listeners who are not that well aware of them. No, it's they're, they're a very unusual band, and Robert Fripp, the, the sort of only consistent member of, yeah. of the band, or constant rather member of the band um but he's very uncomfortable generally speaking referring himself to as the person who started it or the band leader um he refers to king crimson as a way of doing things not as a band it's a mm. sort of approach to the creative process um and but they started off uh in 1969 uh, in in London, and their first album in the Court of the Crimson King was inordinately successful. Um, but the band effectively split up in the same year with two of the founder members, Michael Giles and Ian McDonald, both of whom appear in the film, uh, leaving. Um, and as we say in the opening of the film, that started a process of fragmentation and reinvention that's continued for 52 years. So they're not one of those bands where the the sort of background is so fractious that they're consistently having to bring in new members to keep on bashing out the old hits as you as you find with you know there are lots of bands out there where they're still fighting 
about who owns the actual name and who's an original member. It's not one of those situations. It's always King Crimson. Um, nevertheless, as as another ex-member, Bill Bruford, says in the film, you know, it, it several times it, it threw away its entire past repertoire and, and created something new. So there's a sort of, I suppose, that they're referred to as a prog rock band, which raises the hackles of almost everybody in the band when they're referred to that way. Mm. But I think it's important to make this distinction between prog rock, which becomes, if you'll pardon the pun, a genre sort of kept in aspic. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's sort of preserved. And then there's this notion of, of what progressive is. And obviously there's this idea of forward movement and change and evolution mm. implicit in that. And that, I think, is something that King Crimson has done very well the tours that i followed them on they were playing a lot of old material but and there were a lot of old men on stage yeah. you know to be yeah. frank a lot of them are getting on nevertheless they've got three drummers at the front of the page <laughs> you know and so the experience of going to see king crimson even in somewhere as hallowed yeah. as the royal albert hall right it, you know you're pummeled by them it's like i often say it's like having one of those seeing king crimson live is is like having one of those deep tissue massages you know that you're like you're not entirely comfortable and sometimes it can be so painful that you're like i'm not sure this is good for me yeah. but you if you're in the hands literally of a master then you 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 are sort of moved through in such a way both the massage and the i'm extending the metaphor a little too far now but yeah you feel better at the end of it, but you're yeah. not necessarily entirely sure why. So it's a very complex set of ideas placed into rock music, not rock and roll music, though, crucially, because they, they sort of weren't one of the sort of conceptual decisions I understand that they made early on was not to be influenced by the blues, hmm. whereas a lot of other bands were were in, influenced by the the blues at the time that they started up most famously the stones and the beatles obviously but um they're more influenced by like bartok you know so this is sort of classical element yeah, to it and yeah, yeah. robert described them as as being akin to a rock and roll orchestra which is probably closest to the truth seeing them live is as powerful oftentimes and as noisy as going to see a metal show but there's something else going on there which is maybe it's but, I'm not sure if you could say it's more sophisticated, perhaps more infernal even than the death metal show. There was a point where, when I was on tour with them, that they were that we kept on bumping into um, Slayer in hotel rooms. And I just, <laughs> I just thought it would actually be really appropriate to have a double bill of Slayer and King Crimson, ideally with the two bands swapping members, sort of halfway through. Uh, but, but Slayer didn't make it into the dock. <laughs> uh, no, they didn't. Well, I mean, they're really the, I, I sort of, one of the things that I wanted to avoid with the documentary as well was having to cut in people who were, again, telling you what to think, you know, sort yeah. of, yeah. Uh, I didn't want to have like a bunch of talking heads. To say nothing of the fact that with around, no, I was entirely sure of the exact number, 80 members to the band in total, yeah. uh, there was three, you know, I had to limit. There were people who, who were in the band who were not in the film at all just because there's a limit to how many characters you can ask an audience to sort of see before it all gets confusing and, and no one really gets the time to say anything worthwhile. 
So were you a fan before you made this film? I mean, I'm not asking you whether you're a fan now or whatever, but how were you, I mean, how did this get, how did this happen? This, uh, this documentary? Which question would you like me to ask? Well, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, what were you, how well did you know King Crimson going in? I didn't know them at all. I, um, yeah. I, I was sort of, I'm 54, which means that I was sort of, just a bit too young to sort of properly engage in punk when it was happening in the mm -hmm. UK, but young enough or sort of aware enough to be listening to the radio and hearing people like John Lydon yeah. telling us that, that the previous generation of musicians were all dinosaurs, you know, and they should be taken to the guillotine effectively. Um, although ironically, his one of his favorite bands is Van der Graaff Generator, who are, a, you know, pro band, but um so so a lot of with that sort of teenage arrogance that stuck with me for a long time so i wouldn't listen to to these sort of dinosaurs effectively yeah. um so i didn't really know anything about them but i did know a fair bit of robert's work in other areas because you know notably you know he worked with those with with brian eno and made those extraordinary records plus his work with david bowie and stuff for people who don't know he played on on heroes um and so so i was aware of his work from that that side of things but how the film came about was because um robert and his wife toya live in the same market town in the vale of evesham in worcestershire uh that i'm from and so okay. so i'd met them socially uh because my parents and they lived on the same street and wow and as a result i'd had some interesting conversations with robert and I was making a documentary for Radio 4 about the process of archiving yourself. It was just at the sort of point at which social media was really exploding and, and there was a sort of saturation level for, for mobile phones that, that meant that we were all in a process of archiving ourselves without really considering it. And Robert was, some, was somebody who I was aware was was in the process of, of constructing his own archive with a great degree of degree of self-awareness. Um, so we worked together on that. And then I'd sent him uh, my first feature doc, The Man His Mind Exploded, which he was very fond of. And I'd gone over for drinks before Christmas, I think in 2017, um, and was telling him how I'd been contacted by somebody via Instagram saying, you don't know me, um, but me and some friends have started this sort of sex cult based on the notion of cosmic fuck, which is uh, a tattoo that the, the, the main character in my first documentary had on him. And, it, and it's, there's a sort of um, comic moment of light relief that, where the tattoo is mentioned in the film. Yeah. And these people in San Francisco or Oakland had had expanded on this notion and had started tattooing themselves and had this sort of like weird, well, not weird, but like this little grouping based on this notion. And I was saying to Robert how nice and exciting it was, was to make a work of art and for it to be interpreted in ways that you could never have conceived of. You know, once, once mm. you've made it out there it becomes something for other people and and that sort of touches on what i was saying earlier that like yeah. i'm not interested in 
in in making work that sort of has a particular direct point of view. I mean, obviously my work's subjective, but I'm not sort of saying to the audience, this is what you've got to believe uh, or, or take away from this. It's like, here's, here's what I understand the facts of the matter to be. It's up to you to fill in the gap between those, you know, two frames or whatever. Okay. And so did you know what you were getting yourself into when you decided to do this uh, documentary with, with King Crimson generally, but certainly with Robert? No. No. Um, it's been inordinately complicated. Yeah. Um, he doesn't think... suffer fools lightly, does he? Uh, no. No, he doesn't. No. And I used to work for MTV um, as a... What well, as a producer, but also as a you know on camera video jock. Yeah, and and I you know my I love I love cinema, and, mm -hmm. and that's what I make. But I really love music, you know, yeah. and and I've had some goes at making it, but I'm not I'm not you know by any means a natural, and I'm too old and too stubborn to sort of learn how to play things properly yeah. now, but. Um, so I've been around music all my life. I mean, everybody's been around music all their life, haven't they? But, yeah. but I mean, it's sort of it's been a, a great yeah. passion for mine. I studied at the university. I, culturally speaking, I um, you know, I've been a DJ for thirty-six years mm. or something, and and it's a huge part of my life. So, um, <clears throat> well, I mean, did you know what you're getting yourself into? Oh yeah, did I know? So, so, so I. You, this sort of working at MTV, I you know it's it's the, the, I would always be reeled out for the difficult interviews, mm. um, and so oftentimes I would end up interviewing people who were sick and tired of being asked stupid questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as soon as they saw the little logo on the microphone, they were like, "Oh God, here we go again!" You know, so. Um, I'm sort of, I have a relatively thick skin, and I'm and I'm used to 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 difficult circumstances. And I also, but I also do the work, generally speaking, to make sure that you know, so so that I have a. It's not even a question of knowing what I'm talking about, but I, I try and approach my subjects with a sufficient amount of uh, a, a mix of respect and skepticism. Um, mm. You know, because it's not my, again, it's not my job to impose a point of view on anybody. But at the same time, I do think it's my job to act as a medium between that person, their ideas and an and audience. But I, I have a lot of sympathy for musicians like Robert, and this refers directly to our relationship, who, you know, they, they, they put the inner depths of their soul, they allow their music to to speak for that part of themselves and they've put it out there. And so understandably, sometimes, you know, they're a little bit hostile to picking it apart or, or mm. trying to speak about it when, when you actually, it's there, you know, the music is there. And one of, one of the advantages of, of making a documentary about music as opposed to writing about it, of course, is you can, you can include the music and you can include a, um, something which is more than an analogy of of the experience of of that music it's not quite the same as seeing a band live obviously but you can you can introduce that element um so it was but 
you know, these these are artists at the absolute top of their game. And, and you know, they're all, you could say they're all in the top 10 probably of what they do and mm-hmm. some of the top five. Um, and, you know, a couple of them maybe even the sort of number one of what they do in, in the world. Yeah. So sort of, it was inordinately frustrating on time, at times being told I wouldn't wasn't able to film when I'd been commissioned to make a film about this band, and members of this band were telling you know me I couldn't film, and I don't know if you've seen the sort of um, the making of uh, documentary I made of this. It's like two minutes long. No, I haven't, but uh, I'll be keen I'll, to see. I'll that. send it to you. Yeah, yeah and please do. It may be fun for you to use in the um, in this point because it yeah. was sort of. It was, it is sort of analogous to my experience of, of making the film to some degree. My point being, though, is that if you're making incredible music that's really, really complicated and requires you to be on top of your game off stage as well as on, I am very understanding of yeah. why a documentary maker might be told to fuck off on occasion <laughs> <laughs> which which i can tell you does happen in the <laughs> in the film yeah. and and um, on that yeah go ahead I, actually if you don't mind hold that thought I, we're going to give our listeners a uh, uh an early break here and then we're going to dive right back into that to that whole relationship which is amazingly captured i think um it's one of the best exam i you know great docs are about much more than their immediate subject and uh this whole director subject relationship that you capture that's an element of this is 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 one of the many interesting uh um stories that are that are that is told by this talk so we'll be right back with uh, toby amy's director and <clears throat> excuse me co-producer of the in the court of the crimson king king crimson at 50 premiered at south by and we're all eagerly waiting for its wider release If you enjoy Factual America, check out the Movie Maker podcast. That's all one word, Movie Maker. Where our friends at MovieMaker.com interview everyone from filmmakers just breaking in to A-listers like David Fincher and Edgar Wright about their movie-making secrets and behind-the-scenes tricks of the trade. They go deep and let the guests speak uninterrupted to get you the most film insight. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with acclaimed filmmaker Toby Amy's director and co-producer of In the Court of the Crimson King, premiered at South By, uh, and we're waiting for its wider release. We were talking about uh, your, well, relationship and um, your sympathies for uh, these musicians, especially these musicians that are at the top of their game and probably some of the best musicians, if not the best musicians, uh, in their respective fields. Um, the question I've got for you is, how does this doc get made? And I literally mean that, and I think that c- does f- fall from this. Because, you know, I, there's this great scene where you, uh, you're you talking to one of the band members and saying, you know, do you feel like you're auditioning or something? And uh, yeah, I forget exactly his answer, but uh, basically says... I don't want to spoil the joke, but it's good. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's it, good. It's good. It's... Uh, you know, essentially your role, I mean, I get the sense that uh, it was a day-to-day thing, whether your pro- the project was going to make it to the next day and your, uh, your, your part in that project. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, I mean, a, a, a documentary sort of lives or dies really on the access you have. Yeah. Um, and, and, but also, it, it, 
it lives and dies in terms of how you react to the access yeah. that you have. So if you're not if you're not getting the access you need, then I think it's valid or sometimes it's it's useful in the context of the film to demonstrate that. I um I my my work is enormously influenced by um Ross McElroy's Sherman's March. Um, which is a film which is ostensibly about one thing, General Sherman's march through the South, but mm. it's actually about something else, which is this this lonely man's search for love. Mm. Um, and I think that there's something I'm not I, as I, as I think I mentioned earlier, I'm not I'm not I don't really consider my work to be objective at all. Mm. Um, but I think if you if you make your subjective approach apparent to the audience, then it allows them to understand the parameters of, of how this material is is coming together, and and it sort of allows you to set up a, a relationship of honesty with with the audience. But also crucially, it allows them a bit further in. Mm. I, I read an interview with a with a. Uh, famous photographer who was asked how he set up his shots and he said well I frame them up like I think they should be framed and then I take another step forward mm. and, and that's kind of what I like to do with my films is is sort of bring the audience as close to the subject as possible I used to be a, a portrait photographer and when I was doing that I made a distinction between two types of portrait photography. One, which was fashionable at the time, which is where a, a photographer turns up with a particular aesthetic that they have and a particular approach, mm. and they take a photograph of their subject in that style, and it looks like a photograph by that photographer. Mm. Um, but you don't really, in my opinion, learn that much about the subject. What I wanted to do was turn up, and because I used to photograph a lot of um, what Liz Hurley would call civilians, normal people, non-celebrities, and so on. I used to every time I used to turn up for work, so I would hear somebody say, "I hate having my picture taken," which is analogous to the experience of making the King Crimson film. Yeah. Um, and and so I would spend time making them comfortable and crucially making them feel that I was not there to exploit them. Um, but I did want to get something out of them. And in order to get something out of people, I think you have to show that you're, you're prepared to give them something back, you know, much like um, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, quid pro quo. Um, so, so, so what I'm, what I was taking a picture of it ultimately is the relationship between the photographer and the subject. And mm. if the audience can, for that photo or that film can identify with the photographer then it allows them to enter into a relationship with the subject that's a little more intimate than you normally get. Yeah. So the idea yeah. is not to put me in my films, but it's to use enough of me that I become a portal through which the audience can get a sense of what it is to know somebody. Um, and to do that requires not being too much of a dick, being sensitive to the wants and needs of other people, and above all, just sort of being persistent, gently persistent, not being a nuisance necessarily, although it's clear that I was, um, and, and slowly developing a relationship with people. And that is what ultimately you put on screen. And that is how you achieve a degree of intimacy in film 
that to me is is a good version of cinema. You know, that's that's how you get because I, I, you know, my films generally are made up of moments rather than they are sort of carefully structured plot wise or whatever it's. I mean, they, obviously that's part of the process, hmm. but it is a question of of having these these moments of of what you can transmit as, as real life, you know, coming out on screen. Um, no, and I but think if that, the relationship's yeah. difficult, then that's also what comes across. And that's, that's, you know, there's a fair amount of that in the film. Yeah. And uh, so I uh, don't want to have to do spoiler alerts. So we won't go into, and people just need to see the film, but as that's, I think it's done very effectively. And is it fair enough to say by doing that, you've um, not that this was the point, but you, it seemed to me the, band became a little more used to you by the end of the of, of the filming and a little and and therefore you have some very poignant scenes throughout the film but where but certainly and however they're ordered it doesn't really matter but I mean um, that where they obviously are do open up to you it's it's a very the relationships flips for a few of the characters certainly in terms of what they're willing to give and what they end up giving. And then that is just the, that's the director subject relationship to a, to a T, isn't it? Yeah. And it's very hard to do that with the crew. Um, so that's why, you know, parts of the film, you know, oh, I wince. They're so badly shot. You know, there's, there are parts where it's out of focus. There are parts where. Cause you're self shooting, right? You're doing it. You know, you're the, you're I, one I mean, yeah, there are some live sequences where, where we had a, a full crew to film mm -hmm. the band. Excuse me for the coffee, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, mostly it's, it's self shot. And, and I sort of, I made a decision with the camera that I used that it sort of, it was just, it was sort of plug and play. And which meant that I could, I was ready to go whenever something was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, but it struggled in low light a lot and the autofocus struggled and so on. So I had to make serious compromises visually um, to get what I needed. But what I needed was much more important than it looking great. Yeah. And, and I think filmmakers can get very caught up in, in, the, in the aesthetics of something. And for me, it's like, I, it, even if it, looks, if it looks like hell, and but it's having the impact in the audience that I want it to have, or it's affecting the audience, then I don't really mind. Mm. No, and I think that's uh, so. I mean, as you've already said, you didn't, and we don't, it's not a music talk, it's not trying to be a you don't want it to be a standard music. Talk, well, it's a, but, no, it's a documentary about, about the power of music, music, and it's a documentary about musicians, but I. My ambitions for it were always more than that because I think that when I was making The Man Whose Mind Exploded, um, which is about a, a very um, wonderful but unique individual um, who is infuriating at times, uh, <laughs> maybe draw some parallel there, um, <laughs> uh, that... Um, a, a painter friend of mine, Dolly Thompson, said to me, she said, you know, why don't you just let the subject be the thing that determines the shape of the film? Um, you know, form following function in a way. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that King Crimson is, is inspirational for me in lots of ways, because partly because of its devotion to this, this notion of, of evolution and, um, 
but also it's sort of it's not they're not iconoclastic for the sake of it but yeah. but it they are a band that will will adapt to changing circumstances quite happily and i think that's that i found quite influential in 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 how i put the film together you know it's like i would look if i was lost i could look to the band for inspiration and speaking about being inspired by the band i mean there's this uh, i think early on you have this whole discussion with um uh, robert about silence and that plays uh, so again i don't want to because there's some very some scenes here i don't want to give away to but silence uh, it may sound odd to listeners but silence plays a big part in this film yeah absolutely i mean it's i can never remember the the proper aphorism um, so I'm probably getting wrong, but I think it's what music is the cup that holds the wine of silence, or or it might be silence is the cup that holds the wine of music. Um, <laughs> Either way, it's that it's that yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's also like there's that you know that um, there's a fantastic drawing technique um, where if you have to draw, say, like the corner of the kitchen, which is quite complicated and it's quite complicated in terms of the organisation of space and lines and so on that if you can if you can sort of force your brain not to draw the things but to draw the the, the gaps between mm -hmm. the things you actually find that the picture comes out sort of weirdly accurate I and mean, mm -hmm. if nobody tried it it's a really it's sort of really exciting way of of drawing because it's sort of the picture comes out of nowhere because you're not actually focusing on the things. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that maybe to some degree, I mean, I, I'm very wary of paraphrasing Robert uh, mm -hmm. or, or trying to explain his <clears throat> ideas. I think it's much better to watch the film or, yeah. or listen to him to, to try and see that. But I think that's to some degree, the role that silence plays there is that it is that like it's by focusing on the gaps between things, the things themselves, your relationship with them changes and it, perhaps it becomes a, a little bit more profound. There was a bit when we were mixing the, the film um, where Robert refers directly to silence. And, and I said to the sound um, editor, it's like, take everything out now, everything. And both he and the manager uh, who were with me in the edit were like, mate, I don't know. It's <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 just, just completely dry, nothing. And it's, it's a tiny section. It's like 10 seconds long, but it's magnificently uncomfortable. Um, but it's also, it's, it's just so great that like you're, you, you're, I was going to say forcing, but I'm going to say encouraging the audience to experience silence in the cinema in a way that, that, that we're just completely unused to. And it's really weird is that to have just this little section where there's nothing, you know, you've got a picture to look at, there's nothing else to sort of distract you or whatever. And obviously, you know, again, without doing a spoiler alert, that it prefigures something mm. very strange and wonderful that happens later on in the film Indeed. um but yeah there's a there's a magnificent perversity as well in in terms of like making a film about a band and the first thing you start talking about <laughs> the absence 
Um, it kind of sets the stage, though, doesn't it? Yeah, and it also tells you that this is a band who approach music in a way that is is highly unusual. Yeah. Uh, and and again, it's not necessarily consciously iconoclastic, but they do they do things their own way. Um, and they and what what I think is just brilliant about King Crimson is that they've been doing their thing things their own way for over fifty years, and they've made a success of it. And they don't appear to have. I mean, as the film documents, there's no shortage of sort of grumbling in the background, but <clears throat> they've not really fucked anybody over in the way that the music business normally fucks people over. Mm. And, and you know, the sort of one of the things that's really been great for me in making this film is like the fourteen-year-old snotty punk. Going, oh, dinosaurs and yeah. interesting what men are doing, whatever. They're one of the most punk rock bands I've ever come across, you know, because yeah. they do it themselves, you know, and they, they've got, they're just, they've made themselves financially secure and successful mm. without exploiting people. Again, there is some grumbling in the background from ex members, but yeah. um, I think that if you're going to offer a critique of how things are done, um, your critique is much, much more effective if you provide a workable alternative. Um, and, you know, that's something that, that I think English punk really failed on. It's sort of its, its chaos model was predicated on the notion that it still had to get, well, I'm not talking about the pistols here, but still had to get another advance from EMI and then another advance yeah. from Virgin yeah. and stuff. Whereas the real punk rock thing is to do what Ian Mackay of Discord and Fugazi did or something, which is where you, you set up your own record label and don't screw anybody over in the process and provide a workable alternative. Yeah, and That's one of my hobby horses. Can you tell? Yeah, well, well, and, and you know, I, I'm I'm thankful. That's like the f second, if at least the second, maybe the third Fugazi reference we've gotten in a podcast. I'm very happy about that. Uh, but um, the, I mean, as someone, I'm the same age as you, actually, um, and so uh, King Crimson for me was always one of these bands I heard of that you were supposed to like because they were, you know, that what's the old joke? Uh, well, they did better than this, but sold a thousand al albums, but everyone who bought those albums started a band or whatever, you know, kind of thing, you know. Um, but then I did the thing uh, you do, at least someone like me does, get on Google, just get on YouTube, and you've got some of the performances, and I don't know how well they, they're captured, but some of the stuff that would have corresponded to when you're filming. And I was blown away. I was absolutely, you know, with the not just the three drum sets in the, in the front, but it was... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's up there with like some of my fat favorite jazz. I mean, I was just very impressed by, it's not just the musicianship. I mean, it, there's just, cause it could, you can have virtuosos and this isn't a, to have a discussion about where does King Crimson fit in the, in the, in the lexicon or the, the rankings or something, but, uh, just to say, I agree with you. I did not have an appreciation for them previously, and I think having seen your doc and then also listened a little bit more, I I, I certainly can see how very very long winded way of saying they remain fresh in their sound. I think mm. is the way to put for for because because a question I would have had and any question anybody would have coming approaching this, you got a bunch of guys that are well 
the older members are in their 70s. You know, what is it about these aging uh, rock stars who can't let go? And that kind yeah. of, you know, you could argue, but that's not this. That's not that's not this band no, at all. These are artists. They're not. They're, they're not. Yeah. They're not rock stars. And I mean, some of them have got some gentle rock star tendencies. But what I think's really fascinating about them is that you know they all worked out how to stay in the game. And and you know I think that they have different approaches to it. But but that word discipline is really important here. And, and, and I think, think yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, do you think, like, is, is Robert's perfectionism, which is part of the grumblings that, are, that you've alluded to, is that also part of the reason they've, they are where, what they've achieved, what they have achieved and are still achieving? Yeah, I think so. I think it's not even, I mean, Robert is oftentimes presented as some, some sort of tyrant, you know, in Bill hmm. Bruford's autobiography. Um, I think he's referred to as a cross between Joseph Stalin, Mahatma Gandhi, and the Marquis de Sade. Um, and but but it's it's not really it's, you know and I and I and I have a sense, but I could totally be wrong um, that this is related to Robert's study with with. Um, uh, Mr. Bennett and mm. Gurdjieff and also Spetsky. It's the it's the creation of an environment where where you sort of that things are encouraged to happen, but nobody's really being told what to do per se. Um, but that's also that's one of the difficult things about King Crimson, and certainly for, just speaking from my experience mm. working in that environment, is that it's that like. If you are constantly referring to Robert for approval for what you're doing, that's not going to work out. Mm. Uh, you're, you're, you've been, you've been chosen, I think, for that environment because you have, you have something about your approach to the creative process that is valuable, and it's up to you to do your best version of that. I mean, obviously, it's sort of gets moved within that 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 space and, and and you know no one's entirely certain who has the final say or no one appears to be entirely certain who has the final say as to what it is but it's so it's quite a confusing environment but it's an environment in which you're encouraged to do your best and certainly initially it would seem that that your definition of your best is is the one that's at play but of course you can drive yourself mad um, trying to do your person version. And and what you've just said is it applies equally to the band and equally to yourself, doesn't it? Yeah, and it also yeah, applies yeah. equally to Robert. And to all of us, yeah. yeah. You know, I and think Robert, one of them, yeah. it, you know, that, that, that sort of, you know, Jeremy um, Stacy refers to him as a hard-ass in that. Um, one of the reasons I think he can get away with that and one of the reasons that people are keen to sort of work in that environment Um is that he drives himself harder than anybody else, you know. As, as I say in the beginning of the film, there's only one person in that band that practices four hours a day. Coincidentally, he's one of the best guitar players in the world. Exactly. exactly. You even ask him if he could just have a day oh, off, you know. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, I mean, you said bringing out everyone's best, and he's created this environment. Um, do you think you've created your best? And what is Robert's, how does he, what does he feel about the, the finish, final product? 
in terms of the film is that just say that like people can drive themselves crazy trying to get positive affirmation (laughs) (laughs) not that you try (laughs) um (laughs) no comment yeah you know initially to be honest i I started off thinking that that um that i was making the film for robert um he's you know he's a very very powerful presence and you Mm. can understand why people refer to King Crimson as a cult, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he has any intention of doing that. Um, uh, you, you know, in the film, you see several instances of, of a sort of expressed irritation. Um, and those ir- that, that irritation oftentimes, I think, is, is to do with Robert being like, why, why, am, why are you giving me your problems to deal with? You know, I've clearly got my own that I'm focusing on. He has this, and one of his aphorisms is he says he's always looking for a better quality of problem. Um, so if you come to him with something that that is solvable by yourself, then then you you get some some irritation. What what is uh, so? Um, let me just I'll segue into that. Um, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, but it, what does Robert think of the film? Ah. Um, well, he said that, um, <clears throat> I suppose that the first answer to that question is this film's not for Robert. It's for, for people who want to know a bit more about what King Crimson is. Um, but he did commission it saying that he wanted, you know, the film to, to better understand mm. uh, the nature of King Crimson. Um, I think that he, he's not interfered at all, no. by the way. Nor, nor is the management. Um, so the only the only sort of critique I've had of the film directly in the process of making it was um, that it didn't have enough music in it. But I think that, like, apart from the moments of silence in it, there's music pretty much th- throughout yeah. the whole the whole thing. Um, but you're going to have to ask Robert. Yeah. <laughs> what he thinks about it i i mean i i think that i don't think it can be easy to see yourself on i mean you know there's a reason i used to be in front of camera i shifted behind it mm-hmm. you know i don't want to be that exposed most of the time yeah. um so yeah. but i tell you i tell you what i think uh, at one point, he said it didn't really tell him what King Crimson is, um, but I think I think it does. It does say what King Crimson is, and I think that the film says that King Crimson. Well, this is no. I'm not going to say that because I'm just telling the audience what it's about. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm going to take your um, take your offer up of of cutting that bit out if you don't mind, because um, I don't know what Robert Fripp really thinks about the film, yeah. but I think that Robert Fripp. Um, is more interested in what other people think about the film because he yeah. wanted the film to introduce people to King Crimson, uh, which is something that really matters to him. And the film documents how much that band matter, both to the people who've been in it and who are in it, and also the people who really love it. I mean, that's one of the things that I think the film that I'm pleased with um, in the film uh, is that the 
the sort of external voices of authority um, are fans. They're not yep. music journalists or other musicians. You know, they're they're people for whom the band matter more than, you know, that they, they have peak experiences. Mm. So, um, so I think in a way it sort of matters more what they think. If that makes sense, no, it makes perfect sense. Certainly, especially now that I have seen the film, and and on in that vein, um, I mean, how do you make a film that lives up to those expectations, those fans' expectations? I mean, these people, as you say, have peak experiences at at their concerts, and now you're trying. And there's a whole great section in the film where they talk, the band talks about that, trying Mm. to. Because people come more than once, right? Yeah. To the, to the, you know, so, so you've already had a peak experience. By definition, it's your best experience ever of the band. How are you going yeah. to? Yeah. How are you ever going to top? I want you know. that again, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, please, I, I want that again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, is that a lot of pressure for you as a filmmaker to to really, you know, because as you get into the subject, you know, you understand this, the, and it's great. I won't again. Don't have to keep saying spoiler alerts, but I won't go into because I think there there's something about the fans that you bring in that are worth being surprised by. Let's say, let's say, in, in yeah, yeah, way, you know, <laughs> you know. Um, so um, I think that's part of the experience. So I wouldn't want to uh, affects anyone anyone's less uh, watching experience, but that must put pressure on yourself as well. I mean, you have your own pressure you would put on yourself anyway, but to to know that you've got this fan base that's. Uh, has this appreciation for someone like for, for King Crimson and what they would want in a film about the film. Yeah, I, I, um, I used to do um, uh, this show on MTV called Alternative Nation, and it replaced a, uh, a show called 120 Minutes, which had a great, a very sort of loyal and expansive fan base all across Europe because it was the only time that MTV showed sort of alternative or indie music and so on. And MTV got, got rid of it overnight without warning anybody and and without speaking to the fans. It was just at the point where email had just about started. Um, and I was over the moon to have this gig and I was a producer on the show as well as the pre- presenter. But I was also aware that like the way that they got rid of the original show was was pretty uncool, to be honest. Um, and so, so this new show I did turned up at the same time, same, same time slot as the old one, but with no warning. So I was just aware that like all over Europe and it was a small audience, but it was, a, you know, spread over. And it was the, 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 that two hours, those 120 minutes, you know, for a lot of the audience for that show, that was the only time that they'd watch mm-hmm. MTV. And there was, you know, there was no YouTube or whatever, so nobody had access to this stuff. The only way you could get it was through MTV. So the first, the first word I said was "sorry," um, <laughs> and I said, "It's the old one's gone. It's there's nothing we can do about it. But this is your show. Um, we're going to do our best for the next two hours. Mm-hmm. If there's anything you don't like, let us know. You know, and here's the address." And <clears throat> the next week we got, you know some emails and a couple of letters and so a few letters and we name checked everybody had written into us and within reason you know we did the things that they'd asked us to Mm. and and so so the people who hated us most were name checked and they became part of the new version Mm. of the show Mm. 
and and that relationship to the audience um, has has just informed my work ever since. Um, and it's obviously it's a very delicate balance. As a podcaster, you, you know, I'm sure you know this that like the audience feedback is important, but you have to avoid um, what I think Sam Harris has called um, audience capture at mm. the same time, which is where you, you sort of pander to the audience uh, too much because. You know, you just can't, you can't pay attention to the comments, really. So there's a very long answer saying that, like, with regard to the pressure from the fans, which I'm still experiencing, you know, I get emails every day saying, when's this thing coming out? Um, I started off sort of researching them and spending time on the message boards and so on, within reason, because I'm not that interested in, how a particular time signature was played at a particular venue on a particular day right. or whatever. But I'm really interested in, in terms of why King Crimson matters to people and how it matters to people and how it affects people. So, so sort of, I, I map that to some degree. Um, and then having an understanding of that, I suppose that, inform the interviews I did because I would generally speaking when when I was on tour with them I'd I'd turn up at the venue at sort of load in or just before sound check and sort of try and catch people in the corridors and maybe film a bit of bit of people practicing um and then when the band sort of would retreat to their dressing rooms prior to the show I would go out and sort of talk to talk to the fans and you know you could make an entire documentary on on the fans and and in this i, I want to make clear that i was i was very influenced by a depeche mode call film called the posters came from the walls by jeremy Deller and nick abrahams um which is was commissioned by depeche mode but they're not in it at all it's just depeche mode fans and i think it's one of the best music documentaries ever because you get to you get to see why the band matters to the people who care about it. And, and there's a bit, there's a bit in the film where I have a, a slight argument with Robert, where I say, you know, when you walk out on stage, what's at stake. And in a very fripp way, he demands that I ask him a different question. Um, but, you know, I was very keen to, to show the audience why, why, there is something at stake when that band walk out on stage. And the best way I thought to do that was to show just how much it matters to the people who go and see them. And, and I also just, I really, and again, this is my camera struggled in the low light, but I just love seeing the impact of the music on people's faces. You know, it's. Mm. Um, mm. And you, yeah, you've um, certainly, you certainly get that with the, some of those crowd scenes and, um, and, it runs the gamut, doesn't it? I mean, in terms of uh, gender, background, nationality. I mean, it, they 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 resonate. King Crimson certainly resonates with their fan base. Uh, yeah, and it's a and it's a it's a it's a varied fan base. Probably more varied than I would have um, uh, probably knew going in. Um, yeah, I think it's it when when you're aware that like. Um, that there are, you know, famously everybody says the queue for the men's lose at the King Crimson concert is like four times the length of the, the one for the ladies. Um, 
it's sort of like there is that there is that stereotype and there is some truth in that yeah. stereotype yeah. you know they do they are a band who resonate now for gentlemen of a certain age because they they caught those those men you know at a very mm. important time in their lives um simultaneously i think it was very important to to show that it's not it's that's not the only audience yeah. and it would be um and also i think it's very important to get the sort of the best available spectrum of opinion about the bands as well yeah. there is a, there is a missing scene from the film which um in which uh, I was sort of there on stage and I was walking around the halls in Bournemouth in England and yeah. and I came across this this rather morose looking lady in the bar and I said um, I said can do, do you mind if I ask what you're doing here and um, and I asked if I could film and she sort of sort of agreed so I filmed and. And she was just like, I hate this. I hate this so much. <laughs> um, and 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 I wrote to her afterwards and said, please, can I use this? And she wouldn't. She wouldn't let me use it. But um, yeah, it's not. It's not. Not everybody loves it and stuff. And it's no. sort of like, if it, no. if it if you if you decided that you didn't like it, you must find it very hard. I'm still, to be honest, I'm I'm very fond of the record Red, um, mm. but I'm not an enormous fan of them. On, on record um i tend to like stuff which is you know i like soul music a lot and stuff so mm. not that there's no soul in their music but there's not there's not a lot of groove um and i tend to music that has groove is sort of uh, tends to resonate with me more but live there's just they're just magnificent you know yeah. it's yeah. i would i would just there's so many people i would love to take to see king crimson live you know I think uh, so. Uh, well, if you can't make it to one of their concerts live or whatever the next touring, do do check out this film. I think we're coming to the end of our time, uh, actually, Toby. So, you sure? Because uh, I, I could talk for another four hours, Matthew. Uh, well, I'm sure you could, and I could. Uh, we could talk about we could, <laughs> because there's a lot of great. I mean, there's so many great scenes, um, and uh, just what you capture, it's. Uh, I don't know, low light or whatever, whatever the uh, aesthetics, you capture some amazing things, some amazing looks and glances from band members and, you know, things said under people's breath and you're there and you capture it all. And I think it, you know, you, it's, it's, I don't know, you, you could, you could try to play uh, some sort of Netflix exec and say it's a mix of this and this and this, or make all these reference points. I wouldn't want to do that. I think that would be belittle the film I, I think this is uh but i do think it's capturing so many things uh all in one film and it's uh it's i think anyone who has any whether i'm, I'm like yeah I'm, I'm not gonna to be honest i'm not gonna go out and buy an album probably but uh you know um or s stream it too much uh, but anyone who has an appreciation for music and f the relationship between bands and their fans and what bands and you know sam here is doing the recording he used to be in a band he was actually in uh used to be based in arizona um mm. and so um you know it it just feels like it captures all those dynamics so, i mean they're peculiarly king crimson obviously but there's so many there's so many universalities in there as well and we haven't even gotten into the 
some of the discussions you have with some very, even very poignant moments and uh, people who aren't with us anymore. So, uh, you know, I think it's, um, um, I highly recommend, I imagine the, uh, the React one, well, I know you've gotten great reviews and um, thank you again for making, making this film. It's very much appreciated. Yeah, I think that... Um... It, no, no matter the genre or the form it takes, I think great art speaks to the human condition. Mm. Uh, and so I think King Crimson matter because they do speak to the human condition, not in quite such an overt way in the way that I'm discussing it, yeah. um, but but they, they, they move people. And so I'm not going to say for a second that the process was simple, but, but there's sort of something quite elemental about about recognizing that and then seeking to communicate it in in filmic mm. form. So, so just because it's yeah, it's not a film just about King Crimson. It's a film about the creative process. Um, and crucially, I think in terms of universality, as you say, it's a film which asks the question: What are you willing to sacrifice in order to do something extraordinary? Mm. And that I think speaks to 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 everybody. And with regard to the you know executive summary of it, um, mm. and my favourite one today is um, Spinal Tap meets Succession. I love um, that because Spinal Tap. So I was thinking Spinal Tap meets Beware of Ginger ba Mr. G Mr. Baker. Yeah. Meets um, I don't know who else. I was going to throw a third one in, but yeah, I had Spinal Tap and has come to mind. And um, so I, was, I wasn't sure how you would feel about that. No, I think I mean it's it's you know as Bill Bruford says in the film, you know, with that sense of absurdity, you're lost. Um, yeah, I think that there are moments of absurdity there where there's a degree of self awareness around them, and there's times when it doesn't. But I think the succession thing is sort of good as well because. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that's really interesting about that band is that everyone's looking to the top of the pyramid. Yeah. But the top of the pyramid is saying, look to yourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, that the, 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 the feuding has to go back inside people rather it can't just be focused mm -hmm. on, on the the patriarch at the at the head there. Um, so I mean, with regard to what's next for me, I'm just hoping somebody's gonna say, here is several hundred thousand pounds to make a film where you get to do exactly what you want and we're not going to interfere whatsoever <laughs> well, <laughs> what the, which has been my experience <laughs> sorry on this sorry i'm sorry i'm not to, i don't mean to laugh but uh um it's, no it's, i just I recognize the futility of that myself but but that's that's how this film came about i was working with with artists yeah. who had sufficient respect for another artist to say we think your art is good make some art about this and do the best job you possibly can and we'll support you for it. And, and that's been my experience. And, and again, you know, with regard to that sort of punk rock um, yeah. impulse, it's, I mean, I can't, everybody seems to like the film, mm. so it seems to have worked, but again, yeah. Can you, can you imagine somebody coming to me and saying, saying that other than, than Robert Fripp and King Crimson? I can't. So yeah. I'm making a film about a beach at the moment, about mm -hmm. a place, and that's got nothing to do with the fact that waves aren't particularly complicated individuals. <laughs> okay. I should leave it at that, but just one last thing, one follow-up, because it, you remind me, because I'm uh, uh, one of my other gigs, uh, we've been pitching a political uh, doc, and 
the one of the references has been used as succession. Um, but what it, what it, reason I think about it, and what reason I laugh is, you know, and I won't say who the studio is or who we've talked to, but it's always um, they, like you said, everyone wants to know the story. They want to know the three acts. They want to know, how, you know, all this stuff. And the thing is, as you say, access is key. That doc has amazing access. Got an amazing character, kind of a not a frip character, but a, a character of on of that magnitude. Um, yet it just, it, what does it say about our about the industry? Do you think? Because it, it just seems it's it's one of these you go around trying to pitch, and uh, where the people who are doing the, the actual pitching, I just sit there on the calls, um, are tying themselves in knots trying to come up with stories that people will buy and sell, you know, will will commission and no one will go for it. Because the idea that you could actually just, what you talk to other filmmakers and they say, well, you know, it's character driven and I let it, you know, I let the, I let, let it be driven by this and a story will come out, you know, but it's, you know, you must have faced this. Um, Oh, I do. I do. I mean, and, yeah. and it's sort of. I mean, in terms of my my practice, um, I I have a sort of a, a, if I say a day job, that gives you the impression I make a living out of it. But mm. technically, I have a day job where I make short films about, broadly speaking, the creative process, um, and so those things are fairly easy to to compartmentalize you know to sort of create a, a set of circumstances where everyone's got a pretty good idea of what's going to come out of the whole thing but also because they're short the stakes are relatively low mm. um so i think that i you know i'm a great fan of like the the sort of process of of and this is you know partly what you do as a documentary maker anyway is trying to see something something from somebody else's point of view so i can understand if you have a limited amount of money and and your job is dependent on how successfully you spend that money why somebody's not going to say here's 300 grand yeah. Yeah. you know to yeah. do whatever you you want um but you're right I, it's not conducive to to sort of really finding the truth of something. I remember when I was working as a, as a film journalist myself, I was interviewing a variety, a, a sort of venerable variety writer. And, and he, at one point he stopped the interview and he said, Toby, in, in journalism, what we do is we, we, we sort of, we, we have an idea that there's a there's a story there, and then we go out and we ask questions to find out what the story is. We don't decide what the story is, and then go out and ask questions in order to you know sort of reinforce that bias. Um, but unfortunately, it you can understand why people with lots of money would want yeah. to have yeah. an idea of of, of what's going to turn up. It's not like you say to a kitchen designer. I'll just do something in there and I'll pay you at the end of it. You know, you sort of want an idea, but so there's that, I think you have to be respectful of that transactional Mm. um, side of things, or at least aware of it. Um, But in regards to what the answer is, um, then it's that I think you have to, you have to take a risk. And one of the advantages of, of working in the way that I do you know, thanks to sort of digital technology, is that I can amass a significant amount of material um, 
in my work without it costing too much hmm. you know so so i think that whilst it's not necessarily fair you know the methodology is is that if you want to make something that has that sort of that other type of truth that sort of truth that you divine or distill from your your experience then you either have to invest your own money or your own time or both mm. in order to do that but i think you get much better material out of it yeah. but sacrifices need to be made you know and those sacrifices in strict production terms have to do i think with um, with keeping your expenditure as low as possible yeah. and being being willing to take a risk um, but my first film took five, six years to make. Um, and that, that film, I'll send it to you if you like. It's like, that's even more acutely about the filmmaking process. And there was a, there was a point in that in which I was making a film about somebody who is very vulnerable and increasingly ill. Mm. And at the very point at which everybody else involved in the project kind of lost interest because it didn't seem to be going anywhere because it was just observational at that point that's the point at which i sort of needed to kind of step in and act as a as a carer for the subject of the film um and and that required a significant investment um and just in terms of my my time and my energy one one that was entirely worthwhile and and warranted um but I just think you have to be prepared to do that, unfortunately. Um, otherwise, because the audience doesn't give a shit where the money's come from. They just care about what's on screen. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, thanks again for making this film. And I'd love to see that other film you're talking about. Um, and also, uh, do hope that someone does decide to give you $300,000 to... <laughs> to make the film you want whatever that may be give or take yeah um, yeah give or take yeah but, exactly um, but it's, i mean at this point matthew it's just what i do you know yeah, it's kind of it's yeah. a it's a what robert refers to to being um, a musician i think is a vacation you know it's just that's mm. that's what you do and and so i'm i'm always pointing a camera in in one direction or not and uh and or not and then you you just you fold it all in together okay. Well, thank you. We'd love to have you on again. So she, uh, yeah, it was a great, great, great uh, pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. And uh, it's a, again, just remind our audience, we've been talking with uh, Toby Amy's director and co-producer of In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50. It's premiered uh, at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, uh, and a few other festivals. And we are really waiting for its wider release because I know it will do quite well. And I know King Crimson's fan base is certainly waiting for it as well. So yeah, and feel, feel free, anybody, to encourage Netflix, Amazon, Disney, or Apple, or Mubi to... Uh... <laughs> Send those emails. I'm sure there's a... And pull your connections or whoever. I, th I think we get a... Well, anyway... I'm not going to say too much about who does and doesn't listen to this, but uh, yes, do give it a do do put a request in because uh, it's important. It's important to uh, to establish that in spite of how much I've been droning on, there's actually very little of me in the film. Um, <laughs> there is you, you 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 definitely you're always behind camera. 
Um, yeah, but it's also I think it's important to like you. You do have to kind of like it's only where it's necessary. It's not one of those. It's not authored in that on my journey. I want to discover. No, so. no, 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 no. It's it's completely it's uh, completely in keeping organic uh, with the with the filming. It's it's just uh, to be honest, I don't even realize it's for sure that it's even you. You just hear these come. You know, uh, they answer a question kind of thing. So yeah. uh, no, no, it's all it's. Um, well, I think any reference to Spinal Tap and Succession and anything else should should sell you on that. This is definitely uh, an hour and a half worth your time. So um, thanks again. Love to have you on again. Uh, it's sometime in the near future, and uh, take care. Right, another five or six years when I finish. Yeah, well, that's kind of that's the thing. We don't have too many repeat guests in these parts. We have only been around for about two and a half years, so it takes a little while. That's, uh, but uh, yeah. Good luck with everything, and uh, uh, enjoy enjoy this beautiful spring day. I'm sure you're having there on the south coast. Thanks a lot, Matthew. I hope I don't have anything incriminating in the background either. I haven't checked. But it's, uh, besides the boots box, I don't know. I think it's <laughs> no. It looks great, and thanks. It's been right. a pleasure. All right, thank you. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye. I'd like to give a shout out to Sam and Joe Graves at Intersound Audio in Eskrick, England in deepest, darkest Yorkshire. A big thanks to Nevin Apanovich, podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas. You can reach out to us on YouTube, social media, or directly by going to our website, www.factualamerica.com and clicking on the Get In Touch link. And as always, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.